Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Peter Gleason, the President and CEO of the National Association of Corporate Directors, NACD. Peter is a recognized expert on board leadership and corporate governance issues. Before joining NACD, Peter was a management consultant with both Ernst & Young and Pritchett and & Associates. In addition, he served as Vice President and Director of U.S. Research for Institutional Shareholder Services, also known as ISS. In this podcast, we talk about the origin and mission of NACD, its board certification process, the evolution of U.S. public company governance in the last 30 years, and NACD's new framework for governing into the future. We also address ESG, the increasing polarization of governance, universal proxy cards, and large institutional investors passing through voting power to their beneficial owners. In addition, we tackle private company governance, dual-class shares, and other issues relevant for corporate directors as we closed on 2022. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Peter, it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance podcast. Thank you very much for coming in. It's a joy to talk about governance with you and really looking forward to it. I am too, Evan. It's great to be with you. All right, so let's start with your origin story. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, uh, where you were born, where you grew up, and we'll take it from there all the way to your current role as CEO of the NACD. Wow. Uh, okay, we'll go, we'll go back into the history <laughs> books here. But um, uh, I was born in Westchester County, New York, right outside of New York City. Uh, grew up in Corning, New York, uh, which is central in the state of New York, up in the Finger Lakes region. Uh, left there at 18 to go to college. I uh, went to Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, spent a few years in New York City after graduating and then uh, moved to Washington in 1990. Uh, so I've now, I've now lived in Washington or the Washington, D.C. area longer than I was ever in New York, which is a little sad, but that's <laughs> And you started in D.C. with ISS. Yeah, uh, I, I went to ISS in 1990 and um, as in the research group and uh, worked my way through there. I spent about eight years with ISS. Um, I left as the VP of, of U.S. research, so I was heading up all of the, the research work that ISS was doing. But I'd spent most of my time there as an analyst. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on compensation issues. Uh, M&A issues, proxy contests, things like that. Um, and and after eight years, uh, I was offered a job in, uh, I had finished my MBA during that period. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was offered a job in Dallas, Texas with a small consulting company that focused on M&A integration and went there. Uh, they sold the company six months after I got there and shut down the <laughs> consulting division, which was uh, much to the chagrin of my wife who uh, uh -huh not happy about having just bought a house in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> so, yeah, I can hear that. But then I moved on to Ernst & Young where I was a consultant there. Uh, I did mostly strategy, business process improvement work, and uh, and then went to NACD in uh, 2000. Wow. Ever, ever since. So let's, let's talk a little bit, uh, just to close the loop on ISS. ISS had been a fairly new outfit, right? 
Yeah, they were. When I joined, uh, they I think they were founded in 1985, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got there five years later. Uh, it was still small, very small. And uh, by the time I left, I had, uh, I think, 25 people on the research staff, which was, I think was more than we had in the whole company when I started. So right. uh, it had grown dramatically. Um, and now it's you know, now it's way bigger than it was even then. And, and it was kind of a flash in their eye at that point compared to what it is now. Yeah. All right. So t- tell us more about NACD for those that don't know. It would be surprising if they don't know. But a lot of people listen to us as well from outside the United States. So maybe they have a better reason not to know so much about NACD. Tell us about, you know, its origin and mission. Sure. Uh, well, NACD was founded in 1977. It was actually a, uh, a division of the American Management Association that didn't hmm. work out quite so well. And uh, uh a gentleman by the name of John Nash, who's considered NACD's founder, uh, bought the company from American Management Association and then bootstrapped it. He, you know, took out mortgages on his home and uh, and really was focused. Uh, this is about the time of the Penn Central Railroad issues. Oh, well, uh, yeah. He was focused on corporate governance and, and how corporate governance could improve corporate performance. And it was pretty much, you know, he had a couple of folks that were, were in this with him, but it was pretty much a one-man show until uh, probably the mid-90s. Um, and uh, I got hired by the a CEO who had just joined in uh, 1998, a gentleman by the name of Roger Raber. And they hired Roger away from uh, America's Community Bankers, and he was a membership guy. And mm-hmm. they really wanted to go beyond just the research and really focus in on bringing this network of directors together uh, to focus on good corporate governance. And what does that look like? And Roger hired me on the research side because I'd come out of ISS and had the background there. Um, I also had an MBA in finance and uh, quickly took over all the financials of the organization, (laughs) became chief operating officer and and, and I've worked my way through, but uh, the company's really grown. When I joined, we had uh, six employees. Um, I, I wish I could say I knew exactly how many members we had, but the database was not that accurate <laughs> and uh, was creaking a little bit. Uh, but we had a, the database said we had 1,800 members, and we now have 23, over 23,000 members. Hmm. Um, so it, it's really grown into a, a new company. And, and again, at 22 years, you hope it would <laughs> since I joined. Um, but what we do is provide directors with world-class education, research, uh, networking opportunities. And about three years ago, we created the first uh, U.S. certification for directors. And the idea being, uh, we want to make sure that directors have a baseline of knowledge that they all understand what the job is of being a director and, and how they can, uh, really hit the ground running if they're a new director joining a board because they know what it takes and they know the issues that they'll be confronted with. They know the rules and that certification covers everything from fiduciary duties all the way up to risk and M&A and how you look at these issues from a director's perspective. Hmm. So our, our mission is to empower directors and transform boards to be future ready. And the certification is an element of that. And the, the composition of NACD overall helps directors get to that stage and really transform their performance. And how long is the course or certification and what does it imply for somebody looking to get certified? 
Well, it depends. If you're a sitting director and you know there's some qualifications that um, you know we can <laughs> don't need to get into all the details, but <laughs> if you're a sitting director and you've got you know a significant amount of experience, you don't have to take the course. You could just sit and take the test. Um, mm-hmm. We always recommend people study a little bit because it is it is a challenge. It's a three hour test. It's both multiple choice and and uh, a case study based. Um, so it does take some work, uh, but for new directors, if you if you haven't sat in the boardroom or if you're you know new to the boardroom environment, there is a course. It's our our director professionalism course. It's about uh, sixteen hours. We you can do it virtually. Um, it's got multiple modules, as I said, on on just about every aspect of corporate governance, and the exam is is uh, offered through Pearson View. Um, that's who proctors the exam for us and, and makes mm-hmm. it available online. And as I said, it's a three hour exam. Um, most people take somewhere between, you know, from sign up to completing the exam, it's somewhere between, uh, well, around six months. Okay. Uh, is, is what, what people would take to do it. Could you do mm-hmm. it in a weekend? Yeah. I mean, you could just sit down take the test and be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not, it's not an easy test. It does take some work. So we always recommend people put the time in. And, and how many directors have gone through this certification? We have uh, over 2,800 registered. Um, mm-hmm. and we have, we just celebrated uh, our thousandth director. Uh, okay. Became certified at NASDAQ back in August. Um, but we're now over 1,100 directors. Um, okay. So it's rolling, you know, every week we, few more registrations and a few more people taking the exam and passing. So it's, it's continuously growing. That's great to know. But you obviously have been involved in corporate governance for now 30 plus years, right, with ISS. Let me ask you more on the content side of things. How have you perceived the change of corporate governance? Of course, you know, people talk about Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002 as an inflection point. You know, it, there's always a crisis. It, it's funny that you say Penn Central, when that was a scandal, corporate governance became big then, and, and it's always around these issues. But tell us, from your perspective, how have you seen the evolution of governance and how it's impacted boards, in your view? Well, I mean, to go to <laughs> – when I look at it, I think everything's changed. Uh-huh. Um, you know, when I started, uh, we were really looking at director attendance and who the directors were. This is back in the you know the '90s. You saw directors that were on 16, 17 boards. It was more of a of an honorary position, and we look at it now as a profession with accountability and expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stewardship that that boards have to to oversee is massive, um, and. It's clearly in the sights of investors and regulators. Uh, everybody's focused on risk. Everything is a risk element now. You know, you talk about we used to talk about compensation. Now we talk about compensation risk. You know, we, there, everything has a focus, and I think boards have truly matured. You just mentioned Sarbanes Oxley. Um, you know, we had Dodd Frank right after that. Um, mm-hmm. We've gone through recessions. We've gone through global wars. We've seen the the rise of the internet over this period as well. You know, I was just thinking uh, the other day, I think it's only been about 15 years since the iPhone was invented and just put <laughs> yeah. it into 2007. And, and now it's, you know, 
it, it's everywhere and, and technology, the connectivity is everywhere. So people are paying attention like they've never seen before. And that drives uh, an era of transparency that we're in right now. And, you know, you always see whenever there's a problem in a company, the first question is, where was the board? So this evolution that has happened is really focused in on the the skills, the qualifications, the oversight, the accountability of the board. And we believe it's truly a profession. Now, that's one of the reasons we launched the certification. You know, it's one of the true, the few professions out there that doesn't have a a certifying body behind it, and we thought it was important to to put that up there as a as a goal for for directors. So I haven't been thirty years around governance, but I do remember a time when ISS was giving some sort of certification. At least when you took a course, they gave you credits. Right. And that actually happened right after I got to NACD, and um, mm -hmm. and what they had they had a scoring mechanism. Uh, it was called right. the. Uh, the corporate governance quotient, I believe. Um, and if you, if you sought education as a board, you would get credit for it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the challenge was that, you know, based on the scale, it, it got to a point where the credit became de minimis after a little while. Um, so I think it was great in that it encouraged boards to, to look for education, to stay current on some of the issues. Um, But in the overall uh, structure of their corporate governance quotient, it became a, a, a minor point in terms of education. And they mm -hmm. eventually stopped the, the scoring in that fashion that they, they did back then. And that was, again, 20 years ago um, that they were focused on this. Um, so it's, it's interesting, as, as many people are not pleased with ISS, uh, you know, I think their clients are. And I think they've shaped some some governance practices over the years that have been beneficial to boards um, not easily accepted when they were introduced, but now be, have become mainstream. So. <laughs> so, so that's the last 30 years. And recently the NACD issued a new framework for governing into the future. Uh, you put together a, a commission of experts and you wrote this and I, I had Nora Denzel talk a little bit about it. And she was a commissioner in this uh, report But why don't you talk to us about the process, why you came up with this framework, and what are the takeaways, and how to think about the future of governance in the U.S.? Sure. And and I was on the commission as well. I've been on every one of them since I started <laughs> at NACD. But um, the idea, and, and Friso Vanderord, who runs our research group at NACD, uh, and I sat down probably about a year and a half, two years ago, and we were looking at the expectations of boards in uh, among the stakeholders. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's one thing to say the shareholders want this and, and believe the board should be doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's another, if you talk to uh, the employees and what they think the board ought to be doing, it's another, if you talk to the media and, and how they look at, you know, where was the board and even the, you know, John and Jane Q public um, in terms of how they think about what a board does. And over a decade ago, we put together uh, a document called the key agreed principles. And we gathered the business roundtable and uh, a couple of different investor groups together. And we looked at what are the principles that they follow for corporate governance and uh, you know, so you've got management and you've got the shareholders and we had our own. So we had the, basically the three edges of the triangle looking at 
where what principles do we have and where do they overlap? And we found much more agreement than we found uh, disagreement and mm-hmm. published a, a guideline that it's the key agreed principles. This was 2009, I believe. And uh, when I was talking with Friso about this, I said, you know, maybe we ought to go readdress that and really look at um, what's the expectation now, given all the changes that we've seen over the last decade in the, in the governance world. And so we did bring together this commission and it was a diverse, influential group. Uh, we had directors, we had governance practitioners, regulators, we had investors, uh, academics with the idea of really, you know, looking for guidance and, and principles that we could put forth to help boards improve their performance and achieve high performance as opposed to just, you know, getting by. And um, the idea was to build a tool and a framework. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we brought this all together with the idea that, you know, no two boards are exactly alike. So it's hard to have, you know, codes and, and, you know, kind of a prescriptive approach to, to governance for boards. And each company has to really think about how they're going to apply these, these principles. But we came up with a framework of 10 guiding principles uh, designed really to spur discussion among the directors about these issues. And then we created a, a, a question, a series of questions for each one of the topics that could help the boards dive into this a little bit and, and really shape what they needed to do to improve their own performance. Um, and it, it, we got into corporate purpose, accountability to all the relevant shareholders, board management relationships, uh, and agility for boards and how they operate and the risks that they're, they're faced with and how they're going to operate uh, internally, as well as how they're going to uh, put this out to the, to the shareholder community, the stakeholder community about how they're doing their jobs. So it's, it's kind of foundational. We, we just released it in, in October, um, and that's just the first phase of it. And the feedback we got was tremendous, so much so that we actually took it out from behind our firewall and made it available to the public. Mm-hmm. So the, anyone can go download this now. It's on our website. It's called the, the Future of the American Board. Mm-hmm. And um, we've now started the working groups as I said, it's come in phases. This was the, the basic principles, the 10 guiding principles and the, the questions that can be asked. Now we're moving on into the committee work. And we've partnered with some of the leading organizations in the, the country to really focus in on, you know, how should the audit committee be approaching this framework? How should the compensation committee, how should we be looking at nominating and governance? Uh, and we're digging through all these things and subsequent reports will be coming out over we have one scheduled, I think, at the beginning of 23 and and then one shortly thereafter. We'll be providing more gu- uh, guidance on these issues uh, specific to the committees. All right. And I do recommend everyone to download it and, and take a read. You know, purpose is the first principle and it it's like above everything else. And I thought it had interesting discussions just because the debate over corporate purpose is a new big debate, reinvigorated debate, whether we should run companies to maximize for the shareholders or for every other stakeholders. And that seems to be at the forefront of what everybody has been talking about. Why don't we talk about the NACD summit or other events where you meet annually? And I thought we should talk about 
What were the takeaways for 2022? Uh, we are uh, December 12th uh, here in the, in the U.S., so this is kind of a closing podcast for the year. And, and so maybe it's good for us to talk about what were your thoughts and feedback for this year in terms of governance? Well, I mean, and summit's a great way. You know, we, we always hold our summit at the end of the year. So it's usually uh, early October. Um, and this year in particular, was it was really interesting simply because we were back in person. Um, we've had virtual mm-hmm. summits in 20, 2020, 2021, and this is the first one that we've been back live. Um, and it was really we had 1,100 people there in person, and we had another 200 online uh, who were participating. Um, but you think about the uh, the resilience that directors and, and executives have put forth over the last three years during the pandemic, uh, during the Great Resignation. Uh, we've had economic challenges. We've got war in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, geopolitical issues. So the, the idea of, of getting back together and, and being able to share experiences and, and uh, network together uh, was, was just incredible. And the, the way we approached Summit was, you know, we had all those issues, including, you know, our own social unrest here in the United States. Uh, we had George Floyd, mm-hmm. we had uh, Brianna Taylor, all these issues coming together and the, the resilience that, that, companies have faced, Americans have faced throughout the, throughout this. It was great to be back together for three years and, and to, to be home with this. And, you know, NECD has been, you know, I can't say we're at the center of the solutions, but we've been offering guidance for boards uh, throughout this crisis uh, of three years. Um, how, you know, we had a we had a whole thing on COVID on our website of how, how boards can be thinking about it. Now we've got return to work and we're working on that and, and all the issues there. It really was rewarding to bring everybody back together and, and share some of the experiences because we've been offering guidance remotely for so long. Um, we were able to attract great speakers um, to this to this return. We had uh, Admiral Stravitas who has spoken with us for years, but he really kind of gave us a really clear, frank description and, and message about what we're facing internationally as a, you know, in, on the global front. Um, we had uh, the, the founder of Kind Bars, uh, mm. Dan Lubitsky, uh, talk about uh, really a kind of a refreshing perspective on bringing humanity forth and building a resilient culture. Uh, we had Grant Hill there talk about his experience and trials and tribulations of uh, his his life in the NBA and how he's converted that learning into being a corporate director on some of very very large uh, American boards and and what leadership is all about there. So just different perspectives from everything from cyber uh, to risk management to the future of the American board. We had a whole panel on that and really diving into what are the issues there. So. Uh, I just think the the ability to come back together in person, to network, to see each other, to share those experiences, uh, the trials and tribulations that each one of these directors faced over the last three years was remarkable. Mm. Uh, and and I'm, I can't wait for 23 because um, <laughs> it's it's so refreshing to have people back and, and digging into these issues and and really helping each other and networking and, and uh, finding solutions. It's it's 
fascinating to me. Yeah, no, it's obviously very good to go back in person after being in a pandemic. Uh, I actually just uh, was in a OECD corporate governance meeting. They are reviewing their corporate governance principles, G20, OECD, and this was the first time back that suspended 2020. And so the feeling of going back and seeing everyone is is obviously uh, very good. Final question on NACD. So you are based in DC, but you have chapters all over uh, the country. How do you work with the different chapters? And, you know, we, we have listeners from all over the US and abroad, but just so they know how to reach out and, and, and get in touch with their local chapters. Sure. Well, when you join NACD, um, we have 20 chapters across the country and we look at your zip code and, and we basically assign you to a region. Um, and those chapters meet, uh, they're all independent organizations that carry our brand um, and all members can belong to a chapter. And in fact, I was just in New York this week. I just got back yesterday, actually. And I went to the New York chapter program. It was great. It was on uh, the globalization of, of uh, cyber and, mm. and the protections that we have to have there. Um, but, uh, you know, as a national organization, we provide the information, the guidance, the, the education and best practices. And the chapter network really amplifies that and, and brings it to life through regional programming. So each one uh, basically has monthly programs where they have speakers come in and they're, they're networking and they have you know, they're programming at an, at a regional level, um, and connections get made. Mm -hmm. Um, you see directors from, uh, you know, I was in New York, so we had directors coming in from Connecticut. We had directors from New Jersey and, and, and New York. I actually was talking to a director from, uh, from Utah that was there and a director from Colorado who happened to be in New York, saw the program and right. decided to go. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a local organization that's, you know, carrying our brand. They're they're uh, amplifying what we do, um, but they're also pulling in local resources and, and experts from different you know fields, so that the director community can have a touch point on a monthly basis in in whatever city they're in. And most of our chapters are, I always like to think about it as NFL cities. So wherever there's an <laughs> NFL, present, we probably have a chapter there. Because um, there's a combination of directors and, and businesses in those cities as well, and that gives us an opportunity to to uh, serve the most members we possibly can in that region. Okay, that's great. So, twenty different chapters in the U.S. and and people can visit uh, NACD chapter, and I'm I'm going to add links into uh, the show notes if you want to check that out. Let's move into some of the hot topics in corporate governance. ESG has become the mantra in the last, let's say, five years, environmental social governance. And you're based in Washington, D.C., and there seems to be an increasing politicization and polarization of ESG. Uh, this is putting a lot of pressure on companies. It's putting a lot of pressure on institutional investors. So we see some states, let's call them the red states, that are divesting from large asset managers like BlackRock. And Florida just announced that they may pull out $2 billion from BlackRock. And, and, and the argument is that, hey, you're putting an ESG agenda to guide the decisions, and we don't want that. And I'm just curious, being based in DC, right, this is where a lot of these discussions happen. What's your take on all of this? A few years ago, nobody 
discussed the challenges of ESG. Now it's become a very polarizing debate. Is this like anything is getting polarized or is this uh, something that you see uh, uh, growing and, and becoming more of an issue? Well, you know, I think we almost have to go back a little bit and think about well, what is ESG and, and mm-hmm. why is it polarizing, right? Mm-hmm. So just like any other aspect of, of governance, you know, commitment and action on ESG needs to be consistent. It needs to be customized to the specific business and the company. Uh, it needs to start with a deep and thorough understanding of corporate purpose and business. Again, we talked about purpose just a minute ago in mm-hmm. terms of the, the uh, future of the American board work. And, and then a commitment to ESG can be built from there when you really you know get back to the purpose and why are we doing what we're doing. Um, it needs to be considered of all the stakeholders, not just one group. And, you know, the board really needs to take a responsive action to that um, and pay attention to those outside forces. So we see governance as the driver of ESG. Um, so, you know, the G in, in governance, obviously, that's what we do. But it's necessary, but not really a sufficient precondition for good environmental and social side. So uh, all three kind of have to work together. Right. But we see the governance coming first because you have to have a high quality board. They have to drive a good outcome for the for the, the stakeholder groups as a whole. And boards provided their purpose and primary mandate need to remain deeply involved in the governance mm-hmm. aspect for their organization. So, you know, you got to start with the G in our perspective. But a lot of the things that have been put in place through ESG over years, because this isn't really a new concept, it's just kind of been mm-hmm. out there the last two or three years as, as, as a big push, but it's been around forever. Um, it's moved because we've created improved corporate governance through some of these issues. And, and it, I can almost go back to what we started this conversation with around ISS and some of the the issues that at the time were controversial and now are just common practice at boards um, and, and the evolution there. But a better understanding of the drivers of long-term corporate success in the current age has led boards to look at the entire ecosystem and not just the investors and customers, but the employees, the suppliers, the community in which they operate. So ESG is a sign of governance progress really. Um, and taking into account all the success factors for the company and optimizing their position in the market. It's an evolution mm-hmm. and it's based on evidence. Now, you know, the, to your point on the challenges from uh, the institutional investors uh, and reacting uh, by bypassing or passing through voting power to beneficial owners, et cetera, you know, we're watching this pretty closely and, and, you know, one of the, the key issues that we're watching uh, is the, the universal proxy rule as it relates to a lot of these issues. And the the barriers, and we've, we've questioned this in years past in terms of, of universal proxy. Um, but let me, maybe people don't realize what are the issues here. So, you know, w- one topic, right, is ESG and, and how big it's become and how relevant and at some level also how politicized and, you know, states and governance are fighting back and saying this is not what we want. Then there is a second set of, of pressure to these asset managers that they've become too big, right? Uh, BlackRock 
at some point was managing $10 trillion, Vanguard 7.5, you know, State Street, uh, you know, between the three of them, they've got between 20 and 25% of the votes of the Fortune uh, 500. Uh, so the influence when Larry Fink sends a letter each year has become bigger and bigger. And whatever they command at some level on, on what is good governance, every issuer has to really respond to that. And and that set of pressure, uh, people have said, well, you've become so big that you have to pass through your voting power to the beneficial owners. And and BlackRock is responding to that, maybe shifting some of that political uh, heat by providing new technological tools for maybe other beneficial owners that are sophisticated to vote, and even retail investors. And, and this is really interesting because maybe it ties down to the meme stocks and the movement that we saw in the pandemic with retail investors, you know, going through Robinhood and other apps that are, you know, trading free. And now there's a new voice that can be online, wireless. And that is also a new front because for the last 30 years, the only thing that we've seen is the increase of institutional investors' voice in governance. And the retail investors, who in 1950 was the majority of the shareholders, now there's a bit of a renaissance. Now, is that real or not? We don't know. But a lot of these institutional investors are calling this the new shareholder democracy. And it's really interesting from a governance perspective. So I think that's the setup where we are. And the third issue that you discussed is the universal proxy card, which is more about you know shareholder activism, maybe, which is another side of pressure. These are very specific actions by shareholders and activists to change governance. But this is why it's really interesting because it's it's nuanced, and there are different groups that are trying to have a voice and power on how corporations and how boards should react to each one. Yeah, well, you <laughs> you just raised a ton of issues. <laughs> And you know, I'll go. I'll start with the the, the voting power. Um, yeah. Said so to your to your exact point. You know, it shifted dramatically from the fifties to the seventies to where we are mm-hmm. today. Um, you know, if you look at any of the Fortune five hundred companies, the the public float uh, is probably the institutional investors probably control sixty to eighty percent of the public float of a company. Yeah. They have that voting power now. As you said, they're. BlackRock starting to pass that through. Um, retail investors control the rest, right? So uh, if it's if it's sixty percent uh, institutional float, retail holds forty, right? That's mm-hmm. how it's going to work. Just like our voting system in the U.S., you have to be able to exercise your vote, and you have to take that right and use it. For the large part, retail investors don't exercise their vote, mm-hmm. their right to vote. Um, I guess you know you could look at it as maybe they don't think it counts because the the institutional float is so high. But when we see contested elections, um, where you know there's a, a contest for control of the board, you do see the vote, and and many of these have been determined by the retail investors over the last several years. As and maybe a data point here. About 30% of the retail investors actually vote, right? So it's a minority of the retail that vote. It's a minority of the minority. Right, exactly. Where the kicker is, is you just don't see enough. And Mm -hmm. so when you look at, you know, a contest for control of a company where there's board seats at at stake and the future of the company may be at stake, 
um, the proxy solicitors and the governance advisors are going to go after that retail vote because if they can raise that 30% to 60%, then they're talking about real votes, right? And, and so they're going to push hard on that and to get that. This universal proxy rule is a step towards democratizing the proxy statement because, you know, for those who aren't familiar, you have a management proxy card and then, you know, in a contested, uh, contest for, for control, you would have a, a secondary card from the dissident. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Universal Proxy says, well, now the company's responsible for making those choices on one card and you, the company's responsible for paying for that to go out. So it makes it easier to, to for a, a shareholder to challenge the board. The, the bigger picture, when you take a step back and you think about corporate governance and, and how the board is put together and why, you know, there's a balance of skill sets and experience that gets thought through, uh, and it's based on the strategy of the company. So if my if my strategy at at my company is to move us from point A in 2022 to point M in 2025, what are the skill sets? What are the skill sets that are going to be needed on my board to align with that strategy to get me from today to 2025? And there's a lot of thought that gets put into that. Um, and the balance um, when you're recruiting directors to make sure we have those skill sets. The universal proxy card basically says, I don't really care what the company has done to, to create that balance of, of experience and, and skill sets on the board. I want to be able to put these three people into that mix or these five people into that mix, whatever it might be. And it, it surpasses the nominating and governance committee's role to create the best board possible. Now, you, the other side of the argument would be, well, maybe the board's not as good as it should be, and we should mm-hmm. be able to change that out. But to automatically put that ability in the hands of a, a dissident shareholder or a, an activist shareholder who's out there saying, you know, I think I think we can make more money doing it this way. And it may not be in the best longer term interests of the company, maybe in very short term interests. You got to think about this kind of revolution in shareholder democracy that's about to happen here and what damage it could, could create. Proxy contests, you know, an activist coming in is an expensive route for a company or for a, an activist to take. A lot of money, proxy solicitors, advisors, lawyers, et cetera. This reshapes that whole thing but with the mm-hmm proxy card and enables, uh, uh, to me, it enables a, a, a challenge to companies that now companies have to take on this whenever a different want to walk in, as opposed to having a barrier to get there. Yeah, maybe a, a bit more context. Again, uh, this is a new rule uh, that the SEC just issued uh, starting this fall. So we haven't seen so far everything play out. It's, it's, it's as we speak, uh, there are different campaigns. And now the focus is way more f- into individuals. And so campaigns are going to be about people and not so much about the position of an activist or uh, a company. And it's going to become really interesting. And I think that's uh, something that uh, people are looking very closely. And let me take this in a different direction. This is all in the public company side. Let me take it on a, on a separate direction, which is I live in Silicon Valley and I talk a lot about private markets, right? Uh, a lot about venture capital. And for maybe 
10 years, right? In all of this bull market in the last 10, 12 years, right. we've seen the rise of these private markets that have been incredible. And, and you know, we've seen unicorns that are, you know, private companies worth over a billion dollars. Uh, you know, there's about 1,200 in the world, uh, $4 trillion. You know, there is disputes about how you get to those valuations. But some of the policy discussions is that, well, there's been record numbers of delistings. I was just in the OECD conference. Since 2005, there's been 30,000 delisted companies in the world. So every country in the world has suffered this delisting. So a little bit of a challenge to public companies. And there's a lot of more onerous responsibilities in the board, right? More regulations. If you add Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, ESG, SEC regulations, this is a valid concern. Like, should you actually go public and deal with all this? Or if you can raise the money in private markets where the same investors, right? You got sovereign wealth funds, you got mutual funds, you got private equity funds, you got venture capital that are investing there. So, let me ask you about the governance in that side, because that's a very different governance, right? All of them are not independent directors. You've got venture capitalists on the board. You've got the founders, maybe a few independent directors, but it's a whole different ballgame. So let me ask you, how have you at the NACD looked at the governance of these private companies? How is it impacting? And, and now maybe there's a lot of private equity firms in this downturn looking and maybe taking some of these public companies private. Yeah, I mean, great, great point. Um, even if I look at, to your point, the last 15 years, um, what do we have? Half the number of public companies here in the United States that we had. Right. Then? Um, yeah. You know, we always, back in my ISS days in the nineties, there, there were somewhere between 10 and 12,000 public companies out there. Now we have 4,800 or 5,000 5, roughly. Um, so there, there has been a dramatic shift. And, and you, we've watched this over the last 15 years, 20 years, whatever it may be. Um, and, and there's a need. And, and, and this is where it gets, it gets interesting to me because you have governance around regulatory actions, right? So we had Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, mm-hmm. we've seen that response. In the private company, you don't have those rules, but you can learn from what the public companies have already gone through, the challenges that they've faced and vice versa. There's so many public companies that have looked at private equity boards over the last several years and gone, man, they're really focused on some critical areas and they move fast. Maybe we can learn from them. So this sharing back and forth. And that's why I think our membership is so critical because we have 23,000 directors, predominantly public company directors, but they also sit on private boards. So within that 23,000, we have almost 8,000 private company directors who are getting together on a regular basis and are sharing, you know, I'm on a public company board here and I'm on the, I'm on a private company. I'm, mm-hmm. I can carry those experiences back and forth and I can go to an NACD meeting and I can talk about those experiences and, and what we've done differently on this private company board that may be reflective of some of the, the leading practices at public companies, but I got to shape it to how it works at my private company. Um, so there are great approaches on both sides, and I think that sharing that ha- that can go back uh, back and forth between members um, is critical. So we've taken on a number of initiatives around private company governance. So we've been doing surveys in private companies for years, and, and that's a given. Our chapters are critical here. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing private company programming again. 
smaller groups getting together on a monthly basis. Um, and they, inter, you know, they'll they inter, intermix the public company with the private company stuff. So one month it may be, you know, private company governance of family owned businesses. The next, it may be private equity backed companies. And the third day, it may be a public company program or third month it might be a public company pro- program. But each one of them are different and, and really focusing in on what does the company need. When it gets down to the basics, you know, I think, you know, founder led companies have their own unique challenges. I mean, we just saw this with, with FTX, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> we have no board, by the way. So that's, that's kind of a non-issue. Well, we right? want a board, right? But, you know, had celebrity spokespeople behind it. Right, you know, right. The key is really getting, even if you don't want to have a board, you have a really strong advisory board, at, you know, mm. at a founder led company that's not public, that's, you know, in growth mode. Because you want to have that independent, you want to have a sounding board to to bounce strategy ideas off to make sure you're really thinking about what are all the issues that that could impact us here. Are we making the right decisions for all the shareholders and stakeholders of our company? Um, and and you broaden your thinking a little bit. Um, Although I should say that FTX did have an advisory board, but as you know, no fiduciary duty. Like it's a very light touch and probably just uh, uh, something that he wasn't really taken into consideration so that's that's a huge red flag i mean the other part of that is you know not having a board i think is extreme but what has happened in the crypto world is a lot of the investments have been led without seats on the board typically venture capitalists that lead rounds will sit on the board but in this case the ball is so much on the court of uh, these crypto investors or the crypto founders that the investment community said, you know, we want to get in and it's part of the FOMO, right? It's part of the environment of a bull market. Now, a lot of that is coming back to bite them. And I think that's why it's interesting to think about governance that is so different, as you said, family-owned businesses, public companies, you know, abroad, there's a lot of state-owned enterprises that, you know, means you have somebody from government in your board. That's not so prevalent uh, at all in, in the US. But it's very important to uh, have silos of governance and think differently about how the organization is set up. Nonprofits, that's another, you know, big category that, again, has a very different uh, setting. But you mentioned something that is important, which is founder-led companies in Silicon Valley and tech, right? Google, when they went public, they put, and I, I recommend everyone reading in their S1, the founder's letter, and they said that we're going public, but we're going public with dual-class shares because this is the only form that we're going to keep our private company mindset. And since then, in the tech industry, they've all kind of used this. I think last year or 2020, 21, about 45% of the IPOs had dual-class share structures. And uh, the prior generation, right, Microsoft and Apple and Amazon did not have it, you know, having, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and, and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. So it's interesting to think about it from that perspective. And CII, the Council of Institutional Investors, at some point who was pushing back against dual-class shares because the principle of one share, one vote was so important, said, okay, we get it that you want to have this vision, but you should have a sense of provision, and it should be seven years. Uh, now, if you look at where they sit, it's anywhere between three and 20 years. Airbnb, for example, has a 20-year sunset. And I'm just curious, what has been the position of the NECD with dual-class shares? This is a very contested issue. The more institutional investors go, the more they push back. And when you go in the Silicon Valley, they say, well, you know, we just know better. We don't want some person in Wall Street or in Washington to tell us what to do, right? So it's, I, I want to get your take on this. 
Yeah, well, I'll give you my take. NACD doesn't have a formal position yeah. on yeah. last partnerships, but uh, having come out of ISS, uh, and, and actually ISS just issued their new guidance on uh, on this in terms of the sunsets. So they're okay, you know, with, and I don't know exactly what the sunset is, but um, mm-hmm. they're, they are pushing for a sunset because they've always been a, adamantly opposed, just like the sure. institute investors to dual class authorization. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other mechanisms to protect the, the founders' um, interests. They can, <laughs> you can lock up a company. I mean, I mean, look at look at Meta. You know, Zuckerberg controls that company. There's there's nothing that can be done to change his ownership because of the dual class capitalization that they have. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. You know, and, and again, when you get to that founder. You know, one of the things I want to go back to one of the things you were talking about in terms of the advisory boards and whether you, mm. you got to use it. And if if, right. the, if the CEO founder is not willing to use that board, not willing to listen to that advice, you might as well not have it because then it's just for show. Right. But I work at boards and, you know, so I'm I'm CEO of a nonprofit and, and our board is very much structured like a corporate board, not like most nonprofits are because of who we are. Right. When in your career do you have 10, 12 people whose sole job is to help you succeed. That's what they're there for, is to help the company be successful. And as the CEO, I have 10 people that I can call on a regular basis and go, hey, I've been thinking about this. And I can go by where their experience is. If it's technology, I can call one of our tech directors and go, hey, you know, I'm thinking about putting this in place to help us move to this direction. And he or she, and you just talked about Nora Denzel, she's one of them. Right? Mm-hmm. I can yeah. call Nora and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And I get that unfiltered advice that's independent from me as the CEO. And again, nonprofit, they don't own the company because nobody does, right? Mm-hmm. But I get that unfiltered advice. If I don't want to listen to it, that's to my detriment. And, and that's where I think you know, this governance system. And and I always recommend, even if you're a small private company, go get a couple of independent directors because they're going to give you the unvarnished. They'll tell you what they're thinking. And, but you got to use it. If you're not going to use it, don't go have it. I mean, it's pointless. And this is where I think it gets interesting with, with companies and, and even in the dual class capitalizations, you know, there really should be one share, one vote. When you think about it, that's that's what we're we're here for. You can put other protections in place to ensure that, and and these guys own the majority of the stock anyway, so you know, they, mm. they they have ability to control. Uh, but to to exclude other investors, and, and now and again, this was a, a different issue back probably twenty twenty five years ago than it is now because everything's indexed now. So all the big funds, even though they may not like dual class capitalizations are going to invest anyway, because they have to, right? So mm-hmm. there's only so much push and pull you can do there. Um, but it is, it's, it's a tough one, but I always go back to the governance side of this of, you know, you can protect all you want. Is it the best governance system that you're going to put in place? Are you going to have the best directors on board and are you going to listen to them? and their independent advice, that's what's going to help companies succeed in the long term. Yeah, and another argument to think about is 
You may have dual class shares or any other protection, but if the company is not doing well, I mean, let's take the case of Peloton, for example, right? The founder had like dual class shares, but the stock price collapsed 80, 90%. And the activists came in and the pressure there, the accountability is for everyone to see. <laughs> so, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on somebody and you may be all, let's talk, you know, Adam Newman at WeWork had dual class shares. Travis Kalanick at Uber had dual class shares and you still forced out because the pressure of the accountability of, of what's happening and if 80% of the value is out, of, then that's going to impact you. So I think it's a, it's a really good debate and, and it's really interesting and it, it's something to, to think about. Let me finish here with the hot topics with a last question. Is there any other topic that we didn't talk about or that you think is important to highlight for directors? You know, the the one that's really big right now is this focus on social issues and directors or CEOs speaking out, not so much directors speaking out, but how do you, how does a company balance that? And, you know, we've seen so many uh, challenging issues be brought forth and the, the kind of the, there's a, a unique pressure that I think is in the system now that wasn't a few years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it's a little bit into the corporate purpose. It's into the, you know, the mission of the companies and, and into the talent. You know, we, we talk about talent being the, the greatest asset for, for a company, the people within the company are the greatest asset. And there's a different expectation of companies now. And, you know, even if you go before the great resignation, uh, you know, you're interviewing, you almost feel like when you're interviewing a candidate for a job now, they're interviewing you because they're asking about, you know, what's the corporation stand for? What's your mission, your purpose? Right. How do you fulfill that? And that's kind of pushed even further now as we've had these challenging social issues uh, transpire up here, uh, manifest uh, in the United States over the last several years and the focus on them. Um, of companies are being expected to take positions on issues that they never were expected to be vocal about before. And that can be a challenge. And, and companies are facing that daily right now um, because I think so many people in the country are looking for companies to solve problems that maybe the government used to solve or, you know, uh, right. social issues where, where, you know, different organizations would solve some of these problems. And now the trust is in companies to start looking at these things and, and really being vocal on it. And that can be a challenge for companies, as we've seen. I mean, you've seen, there are numerous examples of companies that have spoken out mm -hmm. and shouldn't have or didn't speak out and should have. Um, but I think that's a that's a critical thing for, for boards to really be focused on right now is what kind of framework are we going to put in place to allow our CEO uh, to to be vocal on situations, but to keep us informed and make sure we're all on the same page so that we don't have, you know, something go rogue, whether that uh, yeah. an employee says something in the press that's counter to what the CEO said in the press or a board member says something. And you you got to create a framework so that we're all on the same page and that communication and trust between the board and the CEO has to be built and exemplified. Um, in order for this to be successful and for companies to really be vocal on some of these issues that they need to and to determine when they shouldn't be vocal uh, because very often you can cause as much damage not being vocal as you can being vocal. So the board yeah. needs to be informed and there needs to be a strong tie between the, the executive leadership and, and the board on some of these issues.
Yeah, um, I'm tempted. I, I know we could <laughs> be talking a long time. I mean, th there's a lot of cases, interesting cases about some CEOs shutting down these political discussions, for example, and and others encouraging it. And and there's all over the place uh, different positions that people can can make. But uh, that would take us hours, and we don't want to take hours on that. Let's move to the rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? Wow. Uh... Well, I think one that anybody in my position has probably read, and it's you, you, we've watched it morph over the years, is good to great. Uh, and really the thinking that, that Jim Collins put into that and the study, the research studies, um, just really influential as I started thinking about uh, my career and, and the companies that I deal with. Um, one that I have <laughs> always held out there as one of my favorite books of all time is To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and I think especially in our environment today, you know, some of the learnings that we can look back on from that, um, when was that written in the fifties, forties, something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, it still, uh, had a dramatic impact on my life in terms of thinking about equality and issues around that. Um, and, and one that's newer, um, uh, which I, I read when it came out and I was thinking about it. Uh, it's called The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross. Uh, I think okay. 2015, 2016, somewhere around then. Um, really made me start exploring the, the impact of technology and the, what's possible in just about any field and really thinking about uh, how, how business can evolve and, and needs to evolve in order to meet the, the needs of society. Um, really fascinating book. Okay. So that's great. And, and those books, those links will be added, added in the show notes. Uh, who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? <laughs> that's a big question too. Um, you know, I would, it almost sounds a little trite, but my, my parents uh, were tremendous influence on me. Uh, the drive that they had, um, the kindness that they exhibited uh, and, and just inspirational, uh, you know, my father was superintendent of schools in my hometown, um, and my mother was a was a health professor um, at the community college in Corning, New York. And uh, both on boards, both just driven, six kids. Um, education was the most important thing in their lives, um, and and just wonderful people. So the parents were first. My predecessor at NACD, Ken Daly, um, who passed away in 2021. Um, just brought a whole new uh, vantage point to me in terms of leadership, um, business acumen, and, and how he, he wove humor into it all so that he made it a, a fun place to work and, uh, and really just taught me a tremendous amount about thinking differently about business. Um, and then uh, somebody I just met with this week, actually, who was a formal, former, excuse me, formal mentor of mine, he was on the board of NACD and it's Ira Milstein and uh, mm, yeah. Ira is now 96 years old. Um, I went to visit him on Monday, still sharp as a tack. Uh, mm. But really uh, he taught me so much about governance, uh, about the power of networks and, uh, and the, the really the, he never really said it outright, but you could tell that, you know, you surround yourself with really smart people and, and, 
you're going to have a much better uh, career <laughs> than you would otherwise. Uh, and, and just how do you build on that? And so, you know, three really powerful, well, four, if you count both of my parents, but uh, three, three uh, big mentors in my life um, that just really shaped everything that I am. That's great. Um, are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? <laughs> yeah. Um, my parents gave me the first one and my mother still says it all the time, which is, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Uh, I'm a huge Rocky fan. I always have been. I was a kid and uh, Sylvester Stallone, it was actually Rocky in that movie, but Sylvester Stallone wrote it and it said, it's, it's uh, not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep going. <laughs> uh, I always thought it was a, a good one because it's about perseverance and, uh, and, and drive. And, and the third one has been a long favorite of mine. And, and that is the uh, Teddy Roosevelt man in the arena quote, which I the whole thing, but uh, it gets to, you know, don't sit on the sidelines and criticize if you've never done it yourself. And, you know, the, the man in the arena is the one who has to put, has to push forward and, and try. And, and you, you, if you fail, you learn from it. If you succeed, that's great, but don't sit on the sidelines and criticize somebody if you've never been in their shoes. And that's, that's, I think, critical to all of us to think about on a regular basis. And the fact that Eddie Roosevelt 50 years, 60 years ago is great. Yeah, and certainly in, in the governance arena, <laughs> where where a lot of uh, criticism can be done for directors. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? I have a terrible habit, um, and my wife lets me know of it all the time, is I find the, the best way I can unwind is is television. And I'm not necessarily watching it. It is just noise in the background. Um, and my kids tease me all the time that I'll watch the same movie. You know, anytime it comes on, I'll watch, you know, Rocky or, uh, well, there's, a, there's about 30 movies. <laughs> Rocky, Rocky's the one my kids always tease me about. Uh, it's always on, but I'm not, I'm not watching it. It's just on and I'm sitting there, right. but it helps my, helps me just kind of free my mind and it's noise in the background. Uh, so yeah, it's not a, it's not a good habit. It's just one that I use decompress a little bit that's great um finally which living person do you most admire wow uh i've got two and uh one's my mother um my mother's 94 uh just been ahead of her era her entire life independent tough driven caring um i can't say enough uh, remarkable things about my mother um, and the other is my wife. Um, my wife is one of the most thoughtful, caring people I've ever met. And uh, she inspires me to be better. And uh, so if I had to, I can't narrow it to one. I got to choose two. Um, two most important women in my life. So. <laughs> That's great. Peter, thank you so much for your time and for your words on, on governance and your career and, and telling us more about the NACD. It was great. Uh, hopefully one day we'll meet, but this was great. And, and I look forward to more of the research and results and other stuff that NACD is doing. Well, thanks, Evan. It's been great to be with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing this podcast on social media. 
If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.